0: Thank you for joining XROM, which is India's first vr podcast, and today I'm delighted and honored to have with me, Misha Shra. So Misha, welcome to the show. It'll be really cool if you could start with a brief introduction.
1: Absolutely. Well, thank you, and really glad to be here. Um, well, as you mentioned, you know, my name is Misha Shra, and I am an assistant professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where I direct the Human-AI Integration Lab. Um, and what we do is we build new kinds of technologies, both we engineer design, do user studies and all of those things looking at how humans and machines could work collaboratively, how we could actually use AI based systems to help improve our own human abilities and things like that. And of course, the technologies that we use to visualize everything is augmented in virtual reality headsets. That's where the connection to that is.
0: Lovely. So I, I, I want to get into your lab, which is the Human AI Integration Lab. But before I get into that, I, I want to understand what was it that nudged you into getting into virtual reality?
1: It's it's an interesting question because I you know I'm a huge fan of science fiction, and some form of virtual reality is a big part of science fiction. I mean, just the word. Metaverse comes from Neil Stevenson's book, nineteen ninety two book Snow Crash. Um, so when the first Kickstarter project happened in, I think twenty twelve, the when Parmalucky was building the first Oculus DK one headset, you know, someone I knew had funded that Kickstarter, so they received that headset, and I was like, oh, let me take a look at it and see what it does, or what it means, or how we can figure out how can we write code for it and build something. And then the first time I built it and put it on I was like wow. I mean at the time you know screen door effect was big graphics resolution was bad graphics weren't that great. It was a demo called Tuscany Villa or something. Very first demo. And yet when you put the headset on and that was the first time I'd ever done it it just felt like I was there. Despite all the limitations and I think that was so different from you know playing a 3D video game on screen or something else you you're there it's first person but it's still different from being there in vr and that's what got me down the road of doing vr
0: even right mm-hmm. now possibly these rudimentary experiences such as the Richie's plank walk you know when you kind of get onto it you know you are in a mall and you've got you're not on top of a building there's a plank sticking out but but you know when you walk on it it kind of tricks your motor cortex into believing that the that basic animation is, is real so so there's something very funky going on would you be able to elaborate on that even today if it's doing something like this what would virtual reality or metaverse could possibly do to a human being in maybe in experiences possibly maybe 15 20 30 years down the line
1: so I think this is an interesting experience you build up, the walk on the plank, and there's many versions recreated. It's originally a very, very old research project, right? That was plank around a small room. And yes, time and again, it's been shown that people are afraid. And you know that there's nothing there. You know you're in a room or you know wherever you're standing, and yet your mind responds your body responds with the same symptoms of fear of heights that you would in real life. Right. Which is super interesting. And this, this very fundamental this is called place illusion, at least in literature. And there's many definitions of sense of presence, right. And the one that I mostly subscribe to is by professor Mel Slater. And he describes two kinds of predominant illusions in VR, one being place illusion, which is essentially a sense of presence. You know, this is not real, right? You know that you're in your living room or in your office, wherever you are, but yet you're responding as if it's real, right? So that's your sense of being somewhere. And then the other thing is plausibility illusion, which is you know that whatever's around you in the virtual world that's happening is not real, but you engage with it in ways as if it's real so everything seems plausible and both these illusions you know, during a VR experience can break because if you're walking around in your room and suddenly you're uh, um, you know the the barrier, the guardian comes up and tells you, oh you're out of your walking space or something and you're about to hit the couch and suddenly you're sort of thrown out of that place illusion for a few seconds but then you step back you're back in whichever world you were in and you're back in your virtual place. Um, It's a little bit challenging with the plausibility illusion, of course, once that breaks, then your sense of your suspension of disbelief just goes away. And, you know, that thing you don't really get back. So speaking of what kinds of things we can do down the road with it, like right now, if you think about it, VR is fairly limited. Right? We only have the visual sense and then spatial sound is more again becoming popular and as you just mentioned, sound is a huge factor in creating an experience. So we think about all the senses that we have in the real world that go on to create an experience, right We got smell and temperature and textures and all sorts of things we can feel which are missing in VR. So we try to imagine all of these added to VR, we could potentially, You know, as an extreme case, think of recreating the matrix. Now, the question is, do we want to recreate the matrix? Or do we not even recreate, I should say, do we want to create the matrix, right? Is that what we're going for? Is that sort of the epitome of VR? I personally think no. I think that we should be using VR to create experiences that are difficult to have in real life. We should sort of take advantage of the technology to give experiences such as, you know, For example, not everybody is able to go scuba diving, whatever their reasons are. Could be health conditions, could be cost, could be travel, like all sorts of things, right? Age, many limiting factors. But going underwater in an ocean could be a spectacular experience for so many people. And we could build a VR experience, which we actually built several years ago, to give them that kind of experience, which wasn't possible for many people in real life. Maybe you're afraid of water. I mean, it could be anything, right? Similarly, um, there could be, you could fly. There are many experiences like that. You could experience being in the body of a different type of animal. You could be a dinosaur. You could be a lizard. You could be an alien. All these experiences that you really can't have in real life. So from an experience perspective, that's what I personally think, that those are the kinds of things we want to focus on. You can manipulate physics in VR. You can't do that in real life. You can't turn off gravity today. I mean, you could go in a vomit comet and have some simulated zero gravity. But generally, when you're on Earth, you can't just turn it off. Um, And right, so down the road, right? The potential for the tech to recreate reality exists. So we continue down the road of improving visuals, improving graphics, sound, start adding more sensory modalities to it, haptics comes to a point where it almost feels like we have a second virtual skin, we can feel everything. But the bigger question, I think, is do we want to? Do we want to create and live in a matrix?
0: Right. So so this, obviously, you know, it's a question where it goes down in the rabbit hole. And Mm -hmm. uh, as humans, I think, you know, obviously, you know, we need to ask a question, where do we actually want to go? You know, but then there, there are those only select few people who would ask those questions. Because with, with the democratization of technology, there'll always be some kid sitting somewhere in the basement, tinkering, tinkering around. And, and you rightfully pointed out, you know, I mean, technologies which can kind of mimic uh, all of our five senses, which is pretty much now becoming realistic, uh, could take possibly 40, 50 years more for us to be possibly emulating our entire brain. And oh, a cognitive function structurally and functionally to possibly maybe uh create uh, a simulation which is indistinguishable from uh reality. Uh if we are going down that path, a is it actually actually possible? B what what, what what's your thought about the entire you know, conversations around Nick Boston, Elon Musk, cool. Donald Hoffman, and many others who say that reality itself is a simulation with Donald Hoffman saying that space time, uh, 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 which, which was fundamental, uh, is not fundamental anymore. And it's nothing but, uh, you know, what are your thoughts around that?
1: Okay, so two questions you asked, right? Like, is realism to the point of us being in the matrix possible or not? I would say very, very challenging. And I say that because if we think about, you know, we can simulate smell and we can simulate taste, we can electrically manipulate, you know, receptors of the tongue and things like that. But the nervous system, And the skin, which is a general purpose haptic sensory device, that I think is going to be super challenging to recreate, even, let's say, 40, 50 years. Because if you think about it, right, our skin allows us to pretty much feel um, so many different types of sensations, from temperature to lightness to texture, coolness, hardness, softness, force and tactile sensations. Whereas so far... If you look at research in haptic design, every single sensation, you have to build a separate device for it. There is no general purpose yet, not even close, not even the idea of a general purpose um, device. And to be able to recreate reality to that fidelity from a sensory perspective, we would need something like that. I think we're long, long, long ways. Unless, you know, we can actually directly simulate the brain or stimulate the brain i should say so something like you know if you uh, watch anime and then there's a few shows out there like sword art online or um where the device that you're wearing that's giving you this sense of being in another world is just directly plugged into your brain right so if everything is happening in the brain then it's possible because your brain already knows how to perceive all these senses even without actually engaging these senses. You already know what touch feels like. So that is possible, that pathway versus the actual physical pathway of recreating the sense of reality, which I think is harder. Well, actually both are pretty challenging um, and both may be long ways off if at all possible. Um, and and, and to, to think about your other question about uh, Nick Bostrom and all these hypotheses about living in a simulation, other folks questioning what reality is i mean humans have questioned what is reality since the beginning of time right um and we're still doing that and we still don't have any answers a lot of thought experiments on it and a lot of i guess arguments back and forth trying to prove one way or the other or at least try to demonstrate if not conclusively prove um i i don't know it's now a matter of which argument you want to sort of side with at this point right like do i believe whether we're living in the matrix or not or this is simulation to me it seems plausible but kind of very very low probability i wouldn't say it's zero probability nothing ever is but very very low probability just thinking about the bizarre amount of computation needed to simulate something like this. The fidelity is just so high, right? And thinking about all the math and the modeling that would be needed to simulate every single microscopic thing that we have on the planet seems like tall order to me. But then again, you know, maybe we're not the ones simulating, maybe there's an alien species out there that's doing the simulation that are way beyond what we can even imagine at this point, and so to them we're just ants. I mean, that's possible, right?
0: Right, right. I mean, that's uh, again, it's like a very deep question. So, uh, uh, human-machine interaction, you know, over the years, it, it's evolved. Uh, you know, earlier interfaces were, you know, keyboards. Then we moved on to computers. You know, using uh, uh, or you, you know all 10 fingers to type. Now we've moved on to phones where we are the only user or thumb thumb to type. And it's not just the thumb. I think, you know, we interact with voice with, you know, things like Siri and Alexa. And, and then, yeah. then now we, there is obviously AI and AI is in the hype cycle because of the generative AI where we, things do, it's doing text to search, text to video, text to 3D, text to speech right? and so on and so forth. So, uh, Talk about the evolution of human machine interaction and some of your works at the U- Human AI Integration Lab.
1: Okay. I mean, so you kind of summarized the evolution of interfaces pretty well, right? I mean, we look at computation, you go back maybe 70 years from now, like into the 50s, 60s. Uh, that's sort of when actually the whole area of human computer interaction started in the early 60s. When you have folks like Doug Engelbart, who invented the mouse, and who sort of wrote an essay at the time called Augmenting Human Intellect, right? And so that's sort of one of those seminal writings that talk about how humans and machines could be integrated. So our work in my lab sort of goes back in terms of inspiration from prior writings in the space. There was J.C.R. Licklider, who also wrote another write-up essay, Back Maybe in 60, 61, something like that, uh, called Man Man Computer Symbiosis. And again, the same idea that machines at the time or computers or technology, we want to expand it, are is a tool that can be used to expand human ability. Right. And so in my lab, when I'm talking about human AI integration, I'm thinking about AI as a representation of newer class of technologies that we're building. And how can that actually help improve our own abilities, capabilities to do things, whether it's physical capabilities, cognitive capabilities. I mean, currently at my lab, we're focusing on the physical abilities. Um, and so that's, oh, uh, right. So again, going back to the interfaces question, right? Like interfaces in the early days were punch cards. And before punch cards, you go even older and you just were plugging cables in and out of the wall and physically moving them around. And then the keyboard and mouse happened, then touch happened, and voice happened and things like that, right? So in all this evolution, the, the mechanisms to interact with machines have become a lot more natural, closer to how humans engage with other humans or the real world, right? And at the same time, machines have also become smaller you had room-sized machines, then you got computers and desktops, then you got laptops that made you mobile, you could communicate from anywhere, then you got computers in your pockets. With AR and VR now you got machines practically attached to your skin. You got wearable devices and things that are constantly touching your face, right? So next step, and not even the next step, you already have technological devices that are implanted into the human body, right? We got some brain implants for medical purposes right now, um, or you got things like insulin pumps that people wear that are sort of partly embedded into their bodies or temporarily. So we can think about this as one frame of evolution where technologies are just coming into you, to you. And it's not that far-fetched to imagine. What we were just talking a few minutes ago about potentially a brain implant being able to simulate reality for you, right? And lots of science fiction that talks about it. You got John Scalzi's Last Man's War and the brain Pal in there and things like that, which, you know, and then you look at older science fiction, which also talks about people and hardware, cyborgs, essentially, you know, the idea of cyborgs in space, again, from the 60s, that man and machine are, or humans and machine, and at the time they would say man, um, are coupled so tightly that they're sort of one entity. And in terms of a cyborg, most of this is physical changes to the body, right? With AI, we can think about what are other aspects of human abilities that we can augment. Um, There's one very interesting um, article I read by, I'm blanking out on the name right now, but the example that that they gave was you know in terms of how tools are able to augment our abilities is this very simple example of if i ask you to multiply two times two easy to do in your head right i ask you 20 times three easy again i ask you 384 times 426 you could do it it'll take a few seconds you think about it and you could sort of juggle numbers in your head but i ask you to multiply three four seven eight two times 46139 now it becomes hard right but i give you a tool as simple as a paper and pencil and it becomes easy and i mean if you think about it it's just wood and pulp and lead graphite and that's a tool and it's certainly augmented my ability to do something i couldn't do before and you know we think about along that evolution of tools doing that and we arrive at ai and we can then kind of come up with, okay, what well, AI has the potential to augment so many different things about what I can do. And that's essentially what research in my labs looking at how can we take advantage of this new technology, but to build user-centered tools and applications, and whether it's hardware, software, some combination thereof. But the end goal is how can it actually help people.
0: Right. Uh, yeah, I think you gave a very interesting example. Uh, you mentioned human-centered tools. I mean, those are the examples that you gave of the tools which is enabling us. And so, I mean, all, all almost all the tools have uh, like really enabled us. But the, the tools now are getting to the point where it could become an existential threat because the tool itself are becoming cognitive agents of sorts you you mentioned that uh, in your lab you're leveraging uh, or helping humans expand their physical or co- cognitive a- a ability largely physical would you, would you want to you know elaborate on that how do you expand the the physical uh, ability of a human what are you doing that and maybe address the the downside also of an ai oh,
1: sure. there's there's downside to everything <laughs> right yeah, we want to have a more balanced perspective we also want to have a very ethical approach to designing new technologies which certainly have the potential to do harm right um depending on how they use okay so for example let's say and I'm talking about physical example, physical world example, right? That uh, you want to build a tool that helps you learn how to do a new physical task, right? So maybe you're a mechanic or maybe you're a medic or you're just someone who's working with physical things, you know, you're not just someone sitting at a computer trying to do a search. Um So now we want to build a tool and currently we're working on building, um, Or recently, I guess we paused for a bit. We were working on building an AI agent. And this agent is, you know, is able to observe what you're doing. So through cameras, obviously. So you can imagine wearing an augmented reality headset, right? And it's got cameras on the outside. We can add new cameras. We can add other sensors to it. And this agent, which is sort of, you can imagine sort of like a, I guess a, you can think of it as a person sitting in your headset. You can also imagine it as basically nothingness, just a voice in your head, right? It is looking at what you're doing and then it's able to figure out what you're doing, right? You can say, oh, looks like you're doing X, Y, Z. And then based on what it determines whether what you're doing is right or not, it can give you assistance, right? So it can give you instructions on do A, B, C, And if you make a mistake on step C, it'll say, oh, it looks like you're actually doing step D. You may want to do step C first and then we'll go to D. So it's doing it all in real time, right? Um, And then it's providing you feedback, or feedback could come in the form of voice. Of course, it could talk to you. It could show you feedback in AR on the screen. It could show you feedback on top of the physical thing. Like, you know, you take a simple example of cooking, for example. Um, and you're trying to learn to do something and you can show animation that's embedded in 3D space on top of the physical object. So it looks like it's really there. And so now you're seeing everything from a first person perspective and you're sort of learning by doing is a goal. Right. Um, so that's sort of an example of a physical task where AI could help. Um. The only problem is that when you move things out of the digital screen, right? Like a lot of AI right now is sitting in the cloud somewhere, it helps you do a web search or, you know, it, it helps you, it recommends movies to you on Netflix and whatnot and things like that. It's not real time back and forth. And it's also happening in a very controlled environment. Everything is digital, right? But once you get out in the physical world, now an agent needs to recognize physical objects Lighting is questionable, it might be messy, and it doesn't know. Is there enough data for it to learn from? Do we have the appropriate data sets? What type of feedback do people need? And do people even want feedback? People may want to figure things out themselves, also. So the agent has to learn what is the right time to provide feedback, not just constantly be telling you, do this, do this, do this, because you're going to just turn it off. Right? So and if the AI makes too many mistakes, then how is a human going to trust the agent? He was going to be like, oh, you don't know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. You're always making mistakes. I'm just going to turn you off and not pay attention to you, which is not the end goal. Right. The end goal is sort of to be able to build a smart enough agent that is actually helpful, not annoying. Um, and so real world challenges, much, much harder to deal with than digital world challenges, and that's sort of the space we're trying to work in. And then the flip side of the problem is, right, the agent is looking out at the world, what you're doing, but the user is also engaged with what they're doing with their task. And so what we're also trying to do simultaneously is do some user modeling, as in figure out what is the user's current emotional state? What is the user paying attention to? What is their cognitive state? Is their high cognitive load? Is there low cognitive load? Is this a good time to even interrupt them? Are they in some kind of flow? And even if they're making a mistake, this is a wrong time to interrupt them. All of these things also need to be figured out to sort of have an optimum system. And it's interesting how challenging it suddenly becomes and how trivial it is for a human to do all these things, right? You can imagine... A good friend of yours standing behind you, watching you do something in the kitchen or any other task for that matter. They know when to interrupt and help you. They can read your facial expressions. They can tell at which point you're frustrated, at which point you're open to help, at which point you just want to do it on your own. It's sort of trivial for humans, for the most part, to tell. But to try to model them and try to do them computationally, suddenly the challenges become tremendous. And... But in the end, if we're able to build something like this, you can imagine the value, right? Where people are able to learn things by doing them on their own in the real world versus, you know, you go watch a video, pause it for two seconds, come back and try to do this, go back, do this again. Or, you know, there are many, many things that require instructors. And not because you can't find instruction in a video, that's possible, It's because instructors provide meaningful feedback, which a video can't provide. Books can't provide feedback. Nothing really can't provide feedback other than a real-time system or another human instructor. And so the other thing is, how do we build these virtual instructors that give a lot of people, millions of people out there who can't afford instructors, but want to learn things, want to learn things the right way. How can we make learning basically? Physical things. We still live in a physical world. Most of our days spent doing physical things, and then there's digital content on top of that, right? How can we make those learning experiences meaningful and valuable for people? So that's sort of the general space we're uh, working in.
0: Lovely. Uh, Would you want to address the downside of?
1: Uh... Oh right, right. I guess so. Any time. You're using an AI system, right? There's 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 things you want to think about. Because now you have a camera-based system that's looking at everything. So now you have privacy concerns immediately come up. If we're modeling a user's emotional state, now we also have a connection between what a user is doing versus what they're feeling, which is a little bit harder to decipher otherwise, right? Um and so privacy certainly becomes a big thing. And then depending on what kinds of tasks you're doing, what kinds of agents we're building, what kind of AI we're using, other things come into place related to ethics. Well, it's interesting because I actually was teaching about ethics in class today in my undergraduate class. And we're talking about all these challenges related to user interface design. Where there's a whole side of design called dark patterns right where interfaces are built in a way to nudge people or manipulate them to do something which they may not want to do but the design is such that it's hard to tell or to figure out how to do the alternative that they actually want to do Um, and we don't want all these kinds of things we ultimately want to build systems where humans are able to trust the agent that the agent has their best interest at heart which Right now, it's hard, even with models, right? Models make mistakes. Models are random outputs. And that's hard to work with because humans generally expect if you press a button, it's always going to do this. You know, it's not going to do a different thing every time you press the same button. And if it tries to do something different, then then how do you know what it's going to do? How do you predict something? And without being able to know for sure what's going to happen, it's a little bit hard to think of something as reliable, right? So, right. yeah, I mean, yeah. This is in general, you know, it's just, it's a broad sweeping statement, but there's downsides in terms of privacy and um, challenges related to individuals and things like right. that, which companies will monetize one way or the
0: other. Exactly, exactly, yeah, so there's, there's so many pros, but obviously there are a few downsides, which obviously there'll be uh, people trying to monetize that because I think we live in a capitalistic world where uh, profit is, is kept right on on top, you know, so uh, yeah. the tech is, is getting... now. The but-
1: other, one other thing generally comes to the forefront when you start talking about AI, as I was saying, let's say we're building AI instructors for certain tasks. Now, the first thing that people will talk about is what about humans? Are they going to be out of a job? But that's really not the point right is there's just not enough human instructors to go around is the problem we're trying to solve we're not trying to replace them we're actually trying to augment them and then also help people who would never be able to afford an instructor to actually be able to get help
0: right um, I, I think you put, put it so nicely because i guess uh the tech luddites or the ones who don't know about it i think you know push the conversation that you know tech is bad but i think there is nothing which is good or bad it, it's humans how we end up using it and the direction we take it towards you know it could be today i think tech is loaded with the potential of creating abundance and and but yes obviously it's got the downside if if it's got goes into the fringe ele- element it can go towards the downside my last question to you uh, because we're running out of time uh, Education itself is getting upended. And we still, at least here in India, we extremely structured and we're pushing all our students to the doctors and the engineers, while most of the jobs are being uh, automated. You know, I mean, and, you know, right from coding to uh, creativity, which was supposed to be you know thought as you know, something which the AI wouldn't get it, but even that. So quickly, if you could, you know, uh, maybe you know, advise students what should they you know look at. You know, in terms of you know how they understand, learn, and maybe the future of work.
1: Mm. I guess the first thing I'd like to say is that without human-produced data, AI is nothing. Right? And so, let's say we imagine a time when you talk about creativity, where AI is able to create things. Right now, it's learned based on human-created artifacts, and let's say all humans stop creating anything right? Now AI is sort of stuck in its own, I guess, kind of like a black hole. It's just basically churning same, similar things because it's coming out from the same set, right? So even its newness is sort of the sameness as before. And, you know, that's that's where human creativity comes in because humans are able to put together things in very, very different ways that um, I don't think we have AI that can do that yet. So that's I feel like without human generated data, AI right now, the way it functions, the way it's designed will not work. Okay. So I, I I, don't, yeah, so in general, that's sort of um, my broad statement about that. Um, but in terms of future of work, I feel like, you know, there's every new technology generates fears of things going away. But people pay less attention to new things that come into place also. Yes, some things go away, but many more new things come into place and many new types of jobs happen, right? Internet created so many types of jobs, which nobody had even imagined. At that time, maybe people were just worried about internet taking away certain types of jobs. And I'm not saying that doesn't happen. It does happen. Technology does change people's lives, Um. But ultimately all this technology and new things that come also need management, figuring out how to run it, how to maintain it, even if code is happening automatically. Hardware needs to be built to run code and machines need to be kept running and even code itself needs to be figured out, right? As we know machines hallucinate, right? It's not everything that's created is actually appropriate or right or whatever right and so in general i feel like you know learning maybe the thing to learn is to learn to be able to handle and adapt to change right learn how to learn and learn to adapt to change and maybe those are the two big skills we need at the moment then we're ready to face whatever's coming
0: Thank you. Thank you, Mishra. Really, really appreciate you taking time and being part of the podcast. What a profound note to end on. We need to learn and be ready to change because being lifelong learner is going to help you in into building a preferred future. So really appreciate you taking time and being part of the podcast. And to my listeners, if you like what you see in here, then please press the subscribe button. Until next time, see you guys. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank
1: you. you very much for having me. It was great chatting with you.